welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. This is a return to a my extended conversation with Dr. Jane Melia, CEO and co-founder of Harvest Thermal, a heat pump company that uses thermal storage to decarbonize heat for homes and small buildings and time shift money into the homeowner's pockets. Now we're getting to specifically Harvest Thermal. So let's characterize the market for Harvest Thermal as you conceive it today, I mean, you've probably got a projection through time, but where do you deploy Harvest Thermal Solutions today? So we're focused on the market, the residential market for start. I mean, we're not looking at all buildings. Buildings are responsible, as you know, probably better than I do for about one third of global emissions. We're looking at about that that 40%, 50% of that, which are homes. And we've really focused on the small multifamily or single family homes primarily because there aren't many good options out there for that particular market. Uh, multifamily homes can have central systems. They sometimes have electric systems. Homes tend to overwhelmingly use fossil fuels combustion in your gas furnace, your, your boiler, your, uh, it, can, it can be oil, it can be gas, but for, to heat the homes. And so that's the area that we focus on because the, there's a gap there. And that's how we started the company. We felt that gap very much viscerally ourselves when we were trying to replace our old gas furnace. So where we started, though, and I think this might be what your question is, we've started where I'm sitting because you start close to home. So I'm deploying initially in California, in the California Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And that's where we, where we started. And we've mostly Bay Area, but we've also deployed in Santa Barbara. We're looking to deploy in, in Portland, Oregon quite soon. But as a business person, we want to focus and grow in one place before expanding. Absolutely. This is a type of technology that can really help take those wonderful heat pumps from where they are today to having a a broader beneficial impact because by taking heat pumps and adding some, you know, load shifting capabilities and other things that we can go on to into a few minutes, we're able to reduce the price point to the homeowner reduce the impact to the electric grid, reduce the emissions for everybody. And that means it's scalable, right? The issue about electrification is how do we make it scalable? How do we take it from a few homes into millions of homes? And that's really what this is about. So we focused initially on the the, the California Bay Area. We're expanding to California, probably going to expand up the, the Northwest, the West Coast, in 2023. But this technology can absolutely work in, in other climates as well, right? It's all a question of what is the peak load of the home, what is the age of the home, and making sure you size the heat pump and the tank to be able to meet that need. You can, uh, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, I, I also have, you know, one part of me is is uh, comes from Europe, I know that market very well. I would absolutely love to deploy systems in the UK and France and Germany as well, where, the, where there is also a huge need for it. But we have to walk before we can run. And But I'm looking forward to, to the data expanding uh, over there as well. Let's just tear this apart a little bit because I, I'm, I'm thinking about small residential buildings, like yeah. single family or two to four families. Yeah. Like we're not talking my scale of building at this point in time. Uh, although heat pumps are totally viable right. for our buildings. It's a different solution, organizers and, and people. So let's just compare and contrast San Francisco Bay Area homes 
of a variety of ages. What percentage have forced air heating and cooling versus radiator, high heat radiators versus low heat radiators in so that, the, that, the market? Yeah. So in San Francisco, the vast majority of homes uh, will have forced air systems. Many of them will not have AC. You know San Francisco. <laughs> so, so, uh, but what was it Mark Twain said? Uh, Mark yes. Twain is always worth quoting. The coldest winter I ever experienced was a summer in San Francisco. Yeah, I experienced that same it's one. When, when I was a new immigrant and going to San Francisco in my T-shirt, it's like, oh boy, what happened? So yes, so uh, mostly forced air, mostly gas. That's what you typically see in California, by the way. Single family homes, small multifamily homes, it's going to be a predominantly, predominantly gas and predominantly forced air. Uh, you do see some radiant floors. You do see some baseboard mm -hmm. heaters. You see a few, but you know, not very many of the radiators, the, the European style radiators that I was very used to growing up, you see a lot less of that. So, you know, as a company, we're focused on work and we have the biggest impact. So it's been forced air systems, but we have done a number of uh, radiant floors as well. We're focused really though on the forced air system and we will be expanding to more commercial uh, radiant floors as well. There's no reason why we shouldn't do radiators as well. It's just a question of Focus, small team, you've got to focus and you've got to make sure that you do one thing really well before you expand. Absolutely. And forced air is a, an obvious market for the very simple reason that if you have a forced air heating, a heat pump, oh, it can move heat out of the home as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are all experiencing this. I live in Vancouver, which traditionally has not had air conditioning in its residences either. Now, every residence built after 2025 has to have air conditioning because heat waves are a problem here. Yeah. Uh, we had a heat wave last year that was you know, well into the 30s Celsius, which is some large number in Fahrenheit that I'm you know, not going to make the uh, effort for. But we had multiple days of 37 degree heat, which you'll remember from your European days. You, know, you don't get to use those real units that much anymore because you know, you're doing this in the United States. <laughs> but they have this, uh, I'm just going to make my standard you know, poke at the United States. It's odd that they insist on maintaining imperial units. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It took yeah, me a long time to get used to it. So the um, so the forced air is really nice because it's trivial if they have to then add air conditioning to a, a, a residence that already has forced air heating, because the same air air the yeah. same air ducts just bring cool air instead of hot air. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, just to compare and contrast, because it's an interesting thing, uh, certainly 50% of our, our listeners are outside the United States. And some of those are in Canada, where we mostly have baseboard heating or forced air, and not a lot of radiators, but I've lived with radiators as well. And they're kind of two categories of radiator. I, I mentioned there's higher heat radiators that if you touch them, you burn yourselves, and there's larger ones with bigger diffusion things. And heat pumps don't create high temperature water. They create cooler but still hot water. And so they don't necessarily work well with the really high heat radiators that you used to be able to burn yourself on. They work just fine with modern European radiators, which are larger surface areas. It's one of the many complaints coming out of the UK, especially that it won't work here. And it's just a fascinating thing to think through this. But it becomes really interesting, especially when you talk about the underfloor heating, which are basically coils of water in plastic tube tubing underneath a tile or laminate floor or an engineered hardwood floor that just warm the surface of your feet and heat goes up so it radiates upwards from the floor it's wonderful stuff i've you know visited friends in santa fe who have that and it's 
really lovely. And I considered retrofitting into our condo, for, into a bathroom for my wife. But basically, you have to gut the bathroom and rip up the tiles and do a whole bunch of stuff. And it just didn't seem worth it for the condo. But this is where I think the thermal harvest solution becomes really interesting. Because I mentioned earlier that it has four components. It has the heat pump, which we've talked about, the Sandine CO2-based one. Really cool. GDP of zero, uh, you know, one. And then it has a hot water heater. Why does it have a hot water heater in the component mix chain? So uh, I just want to, you know, just maybe rephrase that. It's a, it's a hot water tank, not a hot water heater, because uh, the heater is the heat good, pump. Good correction. Right. Good heat correction. pumps outdoors. That tank is a static tank that's basically storing the water. And, you know, as you're saying that the harvest system is made up of a number of components off the shelf heat pump. We've talked about a tank and then the, the, the harvest pod. The reason we have the tank is that we are using that tank as a, you can think about it, as a battery, it's a thermal battery. And what that's doing is it's completely allowing us to completely decouple the time when you run that heat pump, when you use electricity, so you can make sure it's optimized for performance, we're gonna run it when it's warm, optimized for costs and for emissions, we're gonna run it when the emissions from the grid are lower, so when electricity is cheaper. So we can run that heat pump when we choose, while optimizing its performance, storing up that, that hot water in the tank as thermal energy, and that's where the, the, the harvest, you know, the, the bit of magic we call the harvest pod, which is basically the control unit, is continuously monitoring the state of charge of that tank and managing it to make sure that we're going to have the right amount of heat to meet the load for the next 12 or 24 hours of the home and then delivering it to the home as domestic hot water, as you would typically, or as heating, typically through the, the, the fan coil, the forced air, air unit, simply by having that, that fan coil with the hot water in it fan blowing air over it and extracting the extracting the heat from it. I would say that the sand and heat pump is a, as well as having, you know, uh, a lot of advantages in terms of super high efficiency, low GWP refrigerant, is also a higher temperature heat pump. So uh -huh. many heat pumps will deliver hot water at about 120 degrees. The sand delivers it at 150. In fact, the previous version of the sand, which was the generation three, actually went up to 170 degrees, which I really liked. The Gen 4 that we're yeah. currently using is 150. I've been lobbying to, to get back up to 170 degrees. Why? Because it means that that thermal battery has a higher energy density, right? Okay. So you can have more energy content in that tank. And that matters because what that means is in regular homes, which have got a tank closet that have got a corner of the garage or a small space in, in, in the basement, you can actually have a thermal battery that's going to allow you to fully shift that load, fully decouple your electricity usage from the thermal delivery, which means lower cost, lower emissions, you know, while maintaining that high level of comfort and making your grid operator very happy at the same time. So uh, energy density add, Sorry. I, I agree, and I will we'll dive into that. I just also want to say that 180 degrees water is really great for making a nice cup of tea. It's a good temperature for many things where you'd make instant noodles, tea or something like that. It's so high temperature, it's almost like it's coming out of a kettle. So that would be a really kind of nice comfort feature as an add-on. I know a friend of mine in Edmonton who built, she and her husband built their dream home. Gorgeous, modernist place with cantilevered glass 
stairwells and stuff like that. And she has like a 180 degree tap in her, in her uh, kitchen just for that purpose. So, so but, yeah, and, and it's, it's a hundred, I just want to make sure that the, the audience hears it's, it's actually 150 degrees now and the previous version was 170, but, uh, but not, not far off, definitely uh, hotter than the typical heat pump water heater that, that we're used to, yeah. which are about, about 120. Yeah. And now um, I, I've actually dug into thermal storage. Mm -hmm. I'm nerdy. I do these things. Yes. And so I, I look at, <laughs> you get that, I can tell. I'm, get, I'm getting to know you. I'm getting to know you, Michael. <laughs> it's it's so, impressive yeah, so, how many areas you've dug into. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a fan. So the, the thermal energy storage of water is really a great. I mean, it, it's actually a very efficient thermal store. It doesn't expand when you heat it or cool it. It expands when you change state to ice and expand and expands when you change state to steam. But as long as you stay below steam and above ice, it's the same volume, which is really, really a nice. It's, it's as nice a it's as nice a, a coincidence of, of of nature as steel and concrete having the same the same expansion coefficient. So we can make engineered concrete and it doesn't crack when it gets hotter or colder. Mm -hmm. It's like frost heaves in our roads, which you don't experience, Jane, but I've lived in northern Canada, so I experienced a lot of frost heaves. Frost heaves occur because of heating and cooling expansion, and you, see, you can sometimes see it in very hot areas with buckling of railway lines and a whole bunch of stuff. But water staying the same volume as you change its thermal characteristics is really a nice feature. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's a very efficient store of energy. It just really sucks in the heat and then it releases it. So it's it's very, very efficient medium for thermal storage, uh, unlike a bunch of other types of stuff like wood is a terrible, you know, wood is bad. Concrete stores heat better, which they try to make into a feature as opposed to a problem. But I just wanted to kind of like talk about that thermal density. And that means those combination of characteristics means you can put a lot more energy into it and not have it change in its shape or form or volume, and you can get more out. And that energy density matters. So. And, and one other thing about water, which is really, really nice, uh, is that it's fluid. Yeah. And uh, what that means, for example, is that we, you know, we're able to use that, that it becomes a variable capacity battery. All right. Mm -hmm. So in summer, you're going to need hot water for your for your hot water use, right? You, you don't need to heat your home yep. anymore, for example, uh, unless you're in San Francisco. And then, so what, what happens is that the, the uh, harvest level system will make sure where, you know, the tank is always full of water, but we're only going to heat that top third. We're carefully, you know, the harvest level system works where you have the hot water coming in at the top and exiting from the top, and you have cold and warm water okay. coming at the bottom. So you keep that stratification going. And the thermal climb, thermal climb between the two is actually quite narrow. We're talking of a couple of inches. You might have a, yeah. you know, it comes out of the heat pump 150. So let's say it's 145 at the top of your tank. The bottom of your tank might be 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and you have a nice big chunk of 140 degree water at the top, and then you have a nice big chunk of cooler water at the bottom. That means in summer, we're going to heat the amount that you're going to need for your domestic hot water use. Mm -hmm. In the fall and the, the spring and the autumn, you're going to be you know, heating more. And, and that capacity, we're going to vary it over time based on the needs of your household and, and your climate. And in winter, you may be loading the whole thing up. You may be loading up twice during the 24 hours on the coldest, coldest days yep. of the year. And so it gives you that flexibility to have a truly variable capacity. And that's where the, 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 you know, all the, the controls are all about 
How do we understand what's happening in the tank without having to retrofit the tank in a way that's going to be expensive and vulnerable to, to, to failures, to failure points? So have all your controls in the pod, like flow meters, temperature sensors, and so on. Understand what's going on, continuously calibrating that compared to the single temperature sensor that most tanks have in them, right? So you have that one point of calibration, you have a lot of fluid mechanics modeling going on, continuously calibrating it. So we know to within a couple of degrees at any point of the tank what's happening. So we know our energy density, we know our state of charge. That means we can plan ahead and we're always continuously planning. What does the house need? What does this family need for the next 24 hours? And so given that 24 hours of, of, of need, how and when do we schedule that heat pump to operate to make sure you've always got that capacity plus a buffer above and beyond that? And you know what? A forecast is not reality. So you, you have your forecast and then reality happens and it's always different to your forecast. And you adjust, oh, we've actually got more than we need. That's OK. You know what? Oh, this family, they're using a little bit more than they typically do. Either it's going to work in our buffer or we're going to say, OK, we're going to put the heat pump on for a little bit longer. And we're going to make sure they have what they need. So people don't run out. They're always comfortable. And we you so, know, make sure we save money. Yeah, there's there's three or four things. So the, the first thing that occurs to me in this discussion with the thermocline and the multiple sensors, that implies that it's a new hot water tank and, and not reusing the existing hot water heater. If I so it, it is typically a, a new tank for multiple reasons, but not really for the reason of the sensor. We, we do not retrofit a tank with sensors. It is a standard off the shelf tank. Most yep. tanks actually have a, most hot water tanks will have one temperature sensor part way up because that's how the tank knows, oh, I'm running out, right? Yeah. So so that is one temperature sensor, which is the standard. And we're able to use that because that allows us to, you know, we've done a, we're modeling what's happening in the tank and having that point is a control point to make sure are we are we accurate based to what's actually, actually happening inside the tank. So we typically do use the Sandon tank, the one that comes with the heat pump, because it's a very good tank. And I could talk in a minute right. about what, what is a good tank as opposed to a, a less good tank. But but the, the sensors, the flow meters, temperature sensors, and things like the mixing valve to bring that water down to an appropriate temperature for your showers, that's all inside the pod. Uh, so that, and the nice thing about that is it factory assembled, quality controlled in a factory, which means that your installer it's basically putting it on the wall, doing the plumbing connections, and it's much easier, more reliable and cost effective than if you had to put all that together in the field. And to be clear, I, I heard you say the magic word, which is that it's a Sandin product working with a Sandin heat pump. Yeah. But, you know, what I like about tanks, what, what makes a good tank? What makes a less good yes. tank? So for our needs, so as I mentioned earlier, hot water at the top, cold water at the bottom. We need two ports for the hot water, one for coming in, one for coming out. We need two ports at the bottom, the same ring, the same reason, right? We want, want to make sure that we have the, those flows. So it needs to have a tank with two ports, top and bottom. That's criteria number one. But the second thing is, it's actually important to us that we keep this, this fluid stratified. Because if you start okay. to have vertical momentum, if you start to have mixing, that hot water won't be 145 anymore. It might be right. 130, 135. And the more you do it, you might get more mixing. And so it does actually impact the overall efficiency of the system. It would still work, mm -hmm. but not work quite as well. So what I call a good tank, when the water comes in, they have diffusers. 
that encourage that yeah. water to go horizontally. You reduce that vertical momentum, as opposed to you could just imagine a tap coming in and water going down, which if you've got a tank, if you've got a, you know, a, a, say a, let's imagine a heat pump system, which is just heating the whole tank, and they don't really care about vertical mixing, it's gonna be mixed anyway, was we yeah. manage the stratification. So we look for a tank which is gonna enable that. And there are a number of them on the market. It's, you know, the Sandin tank is not the only one, but it's something which is valuable for this. It's, it's gonna have an impact on your performance. And yeah. so that's one of the things we look out for. Yeah, it's interesting. Maintaining the thermocline requires a, you know, as you say, horizontal diffusion. And, and so there's broader inputs with lower volume, lower- Low velocity. Uh, no, low velocity. I was, mm -hmm. I, I was actually looking at the or, origin of the super soaker this morning. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, believe it or not, the story of the super soaker, you should look this up. The guy who invented the super soaker squirt gun was playing around with a heat pump. He's an engineer. Okay. It turns out, uh, I just found this out in my coffee after reading about this guy, that he actually used, to, he was working for somebody that I have also spoken to, Paul Verbos, who is, uh, was a program director at uh, the National Labs, you know, in uh, the United States, uh, one of the originators of specific portions of neural net machine learning. And he wrote the foreword for my machine learning assessment of clean tech stuff. But the engineer got this jet of water out of this heat pump. And he's like, what's going on? And he said, what physical property is causing this jet to go all the way across the room? Could I make a squirt gun with that? And he <laughs> butts around and he made the super soaker, which became the best-selling toy for that company that he sold it to. And my buddy who I just had coffee with has actually spoken to him three times. So, but it's a heat pump story, believe it or not. The super soaker. I did not know. <laughs> you look it up. It's very funny, but yeah, the, um, and this actually gets right back to your PhD because this is, fluid dynamics in a closed system or an open system. This is, you actually are probably better able to understand and articulate this than most of the other people, including the technical people associated with your company because of that interesting background you have. Yeah, I mean, certainly fluid mechanics is something I enjoy. And it was actually fun that part of the problem of getting gas furnace out of our home became, oh, stratification is important. And how do we think about the layer model? This is a team effort, though. This is not a Jane effort. This is we've know, got a I ton know. of people working on it. But uh, yeah. So, so uh, the other question that occurs, we've got a 10 or so minutes left, and I, I do respect your time. The other question, though, uh, I heard three factors you optimize for. I heard cost, I heard grid emissions, and I heard requirement for delivery of heat to the home. Maybe there was a fourth, but it was basically looking to optimize a multifactorial space with the thermal harvest pod. It's kind of the secret sauce component I mentioned before. So why don't you talk more about that? Where do you get the data from? How do the users interact with that? Is there, you know, of course, is there a cloud SaaS for that? Is there external monitors? Is it controlled and, and you know, contained within the home? What's the security on it? <laughs> you know, yeah. pull those things together. It, yeah, I mean, it's always interesting when you when you have this type of problem, right? There, there are multiple things you want to optimize for, right? You know, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a climate problem, right? So it's emissions, but it's a grid problem. So it's, it's capacity of the grid and, and it's cost and it's comfort. I mean, the thing that really matters for us in allowing people to transition, right, to make change is comfort is number one, right? Yeah. They have to be warm, they have to have hot water. And that is the key thing. So understanding, you know, making sure we have enough 
heat stored in that tank to meet the needs of the home and making sure we have the agility if we see, oh, they're using more water than they typically would to respond to that is really, really paramount. So first of all, it's like, you know, what does this home, what what do you expect this home is going to need for the next 24 hours? What is it? Also, how is the heat pump going to perform? What is the temperature like outdoors? So how are we going to be able to optimize the performance of the of the heat pump, but also as, uh, you know, over time, you get that machine learning element, which is, you know, this home has is facing west, it seems to have a lot of heat gain in the afternoon, which is good. So we can optimize a bit more, right, optimize their performance, because we know they're going to get more warmth in the afternoon, or on the contrary, you're east facing, so you get your, your solar gain in the morning, but not much else during the day. And so you're able to then fine tune the performance of the system based on the specific needs of the, of, of the household. But the key thing is knowing what's happening inside the tank and knowing how that compares to what we had expected allows us to then correct course as needed and do so before the homeowners aware that we're using that they're using more than they typically would. Uh, so, you know, one, you know, I think we have a level of control and visibility, which, of course, I mean, it's a modern device. It's a smart device, right? It's not your old gas furnace or your old gas water heater. So we know, you know, how it's performing. One of our early, uh, early homes, uh, you know, the system was saying, well, these folks are using hot water at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. And, you know, we, we, we obviously sent them alert and said, you're using hot water at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. Is something going on? They said, oh, we have an ADU, you know, we have an auxiliary, you know, granny flat. And there was a hot water leak in that house. Nothing to do with the system, but it's the visibility we have to yep. what's going on and the ability to react to that, which is important. People often say, well, you know, you're using one tank for both your heating and your hot water. So will I run out of hot water? And I mean, there are, there are a couple of answers to that. Well, first of all, we're storing that water at higher temperature. So it's that energy density. Also, it's going to be a bigger tank than you typically have just for your hot water yep. tank in itself. But so it's going to be a taller tank, but it's still going to fit into most tank closets or corner of the garage. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are putting in heat pump water heaters that actually have the compressor on top of it, which makes it a very tall. Our tank is, is no bigger than that, right? It's just a slightly bigger yeah. tank with a high energy density. But most importantly, we actually know what's happening inside that tank very well. So once you get to that top third and you're thinking, well, they're using more than they typically would, we have a ton of time to react and yeah. to replenish. And so, I would um, say... So, so how many liters is the tank or whatever the American equivalent of liters is? So it, it varies, but most of the homes we're, we're currently deploying is a 119-gallon tank. Some of the smaller okay. homes, it's an 83-gallon tank. And some of the larger homes, particularly ones with more space, they may say, you know what, I've got space, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, use a second tank. Or I have a second old tank that we're going to be able to connect to it, to the existing one for storage. But most of the homes are kind of deploying its one 119-gallon tank. How does that compare to a hot water heater tank? Because I don't actually know. So I most, live in a condo. yeah. So so many hot water heater hot water tanks. I think on average it's going to be about fifty gallons for a larger household, okay. maybe sixty. The smaller household, forty. So it is a bigger tank. Yep. But we, but it it, it fits. I mean that that was something really important. This was like like you know the thing was how do I how do I get gas out of my home? And I was like, oh, this yeah. is a, this is a problem. This was harder than I thought it was going to be. And so, you know, yeah. started developing the solution. But the, but one of the key light bulbs was not just how do I solve my problem, but it was 
whoops, you know, most homes are using gas. We have to get millions of homes off gas. And these homes are, many of them are compact. They don't have a ton of space. So how can we do something that's actually gonna be scalable so that we can beat this climate change thing? Uh, and so the idea was, let's not make it just for the well-meaning, well-off. Let's make it yeah. for everybody. So that means high temperature density, high energy density, sorry, and therefore comp relatively compact size so it can be scalable. We're about to deploy in a number of uh, low-income uh, apartments. In, this is a, a okay. multi, two multifamily properties, four, four apartments per, per, per unit. And they're smaller apartments. They're also, yep. you have that, that, that benefit of being four apartments together means that they actually have mm -hmm. economies in terms of, of heat loss. So they have these, the smaller 83 gallon tank, which are actually relatively tall, but nice and narrow. So they fit into a smaller mm -hmm. closet, which works just great for those apartments. I'm going to ask you for a favor uh, or, you know, do you have 10 extra minutes? Because this is a great conversation. Yeah. I have two more topics I want to touch on. I have 10 extra minutes. Absolutely. That's wonderful to hear. So the first question, I'm just thinking about the optimization model. I happen to be familiar with time of use billing for electricity and yep. some of the electricity rates in California, because when you're looking at electricity rates, California always comes up and the time of use billing always comes up. And so this is an interesting contradictory optimization model from what I'm hearing you say, because you're looking for the lower temperature gradient time to fill up your thermal battery, but that's at the time typically historically, when time of use billing was highest. They're doing an interesting trade-off there in terms of number of kilowatt hours you have to acquire at what price to find them optimally within a 24-hour period. I mean, how much so, so how much time not, do you spend so, on that not, one? So not so much. I mean, that that's a situation which okay. is has changed and is and it continues to to evolve in in a way which I, I think is 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 positive. So we think about the grid, right? We think about the classic mm -hmm. duck curve or, or the devil's horns or, yep. or the armadillo, right? That bumpy profile. And, and many states, many locations, many utilities and have uh, got solar, a chunk of solar in the, in the middle of the day. Maybe they've got some wind in the evening. So you get that uneven profile. What that means is that the pain point for our utilities and our grid operators is that ramp up in the evening and to some extent a ramp up in the morning, which is when it's expensive it's dirty and they they have huge capacity constraints in in you know in delivering that electricity so you know most majority of homes in in the us and, and in canada are using fossil fuels to heat their homes that's two-thirds of the energy use of homes and we're saying we've got to get these homes off gas we've got to transition them to something which is clean and electric because the electric grid is getting cleaner and cleaner every year gas is not getting cleaner and so what can go wrong with that, right? We all need to heat our homes at the same time of the day, which is typically the morning and, and the night and the evening. And so that is a huge load that comes onto the grid in the morning and the evening. And what that does is it's not using as much as we'd like it to that abundant solar electricity, which is available in the middle of the day. And so it would actually make the, the life of the grid operation, the utilities harder and not better, right? And, and yet we know, this is what I was talking about earlier about this fratricidal battle between electric grid and the, 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 the electrification. Heat pumps are the heroes of the story, but we need to find a, a more streamlined way to use them. And so what's happening right now is because that Thermal, cost yeah. of generation in the evening and the morning is high and the emissions in the evening and morning is high, is the time of use rates are actually now more in the evening between four and nine, okay. between three and eight. That's when it's most expensive. The time of use rate in where I am right now in, in, um, in PG&E territory 
in Northern California, you've got a, a factor of about three between the, the middle of the day and, and the evening. That's a huge differential. Yeah. And so, and in some utilities, I'm beginning to see even two peaks, a morning peak cost and an evening peak cost that is passed mm -hmm. on to the homeowners. And I think that is a natural alignment because if we want to electrify our homes, we have to do it in a thoughtful way that's going to allow the grid to be able to bear that. And that's encouraging us to come up with smart ways to do that, the ways that are going to help the grid and save people money at the same time. So it's actually not in conflict. Using electricity 11, 12 mm -hmm. is actually the cheapest time to use it. It's warmer, it's lowest emissions. So it really actually, you know, squares the circle of, of doing all that. Yeah, that... That is actually quite advantageous because, you know, my previous modeling on heat pumps was based upon average or peak usage stuff. And so taking the lowest, that, it hadn't occurred to me that California's duck curve made it especially valuable there. Yeah. Question around that. So it's a smart, the pod is a smart appliance. Is it uh, internet connected back to your cloud? And so you can download new profiles onto it and you can obviously monitor it because yeah. you did that. It is. It is internet connect connected, uh, cloud connected. It's also, though, it also can work autonomously. So if you mm -hmm. lose your connectivity or if you're down or for any reason you're not connected, the system will still operate. It just won't have some of the feeds such as the yeah. temperature that be, might be coming from the cloud or or some of the, you know, some of the, the, the maintenance and alerts loop, right, because you won't have the, that visibility. But the vast majority of, of our systems are cloud connected that allows us as you mentioned that will allow us to upgrade the rate schedule for example uh, that will yeah. also allow us to do load shaping to do demand response to yeah. respond to price signals as well although i will say mm -hmm. that the harvest thermal system is already pretty optimized for the grid and that we're always yeah. already shaping that load in the right way but you know if the if the grid operators say you know what tomorrow we don't want you to run use electricity between this time and this time harvest can do that and the nice thing is that we can do it without impacting the comfort and the safety of the homeowners. Mm -hmm. They can still get their heat and we won't have to run the heat pump because we can store it up ahead of time. Yeah, no, that's that's a really nice model. That explains some of the aspects and claims that you make now make a certain amount of sense. Now, as we look and compare and contrast, one of the things I looked at is regulatory changes and regulatory diversion and patchworks across jurisdictions. I, I tend to spend a lot of my time looking at the as William Gibson, the Vancouver author, says, the, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And, you know, the future of a decarbonized urban area and residences is more here in Vancouver and there in San Francisco than it is, for example, in Des Moines. Not to pick on Des Moines, but why not pick on Iowa if you're going to pick on a, you know, a state or something? And so <laughs> anybody who lives in Iowa just... I, I love your state. I really do. The uh, interesting question there, as you start moving out into new jurisdictions and new markets, you run into, you'll run into two different and possibly three different problem areas and headwinds. The first is significantly different rate structures and regulatory structures. So that means you'll have to pick your expansion plans. I've looked mm -hmm. at that across North America. A heat, I was actually trying to do a heat pump startup at one point. The second one is the interesting question of local HVAC installers who have captured the market and are pushing back against heat pumps because they know how to install air conditioners and gas furnaces for twice the installation fees and twice the maintenance fees and twice the replacement cycles and technology. They just know how it works. 
And so how are you finding it dealing? Because do you do your own installations right now or are you acquiring third-party vendors to do that when you new when you expand. Yeah, so we started deploying in the in, in the Bay Area and we have now trained 22 different independent contractors on our system. Mm-hmm. It's not terribly complex, right? It's a heat pump, it's a tank and an air handler, but there is a little bit, you know, a couple of hours of this is how you do it, this is how you wire it and so on. So we've trained 22 contractor firms in the Bay Area who are uh, deploying our systems. We have a wait list of hundreds of homes. We're able to give them leads, but they're generating their own leads now, which is which is very exciting and that, that's helping us grow. Um, but what we're finding is that, you know, we all live in the same, we all live in the same world, right? And there's a there's a, a growing number of inst- HVAC contractors, HVAC contractors, plumbers and others who, who just see the writing on the wall. They see a climate change is happening. And they mm-hmm. want to be part of the solution. They also see a new market opening up for heat pumps and electrification. Mm-hmm. They see a ton of incentives coming down the, the pipeline. The Inflation Reduction Act yeah. is one of them. But many states, yep. many cities, many utilities with time of use rates, many programs are providing very significant support towards it. So this actually helps them uh, as a sales tool as well. So we, you know, we found a a large number of of contractors who have done heat pumps before who feel comfortable doing heat pumps and installing heat pumps and then are ready to take the step in deploying our new technology and see it as a differentiator they're able to say this is the lowest carbon heating you can get and it's going to save you money they like that they also want to be part of the solution so you know it it will take you know change is always a, a bit of a wave you've got the early adopters and, and and so on but but i think we've we've reached a point where enough people are motivated to be part of the solution and drive change that we haven't had too much trouble in identifying contractors now that may vary in in, in different locations but what what i'm seeing you know as we talked about earlier i've been part of a number of, of startups and they've been they've had fantastic products right great ideas great technologies but the tailwinds to solve climate change right now have never been bigger, right? We see yeah. utilities, we see homeowners, right? I'm, I'm living in a state where every September we now have a smoke season, right? That brings it home to you, right? Other people are living in places where we're seeing more violent hurricanes or, or tornadoes, that brings it home to you. So we're seeing an awareness in the population, which is which is growing. We're seeing the that the, the that this nations, you know, grappling with the geopolitical risk of, of buying your your gas from from a you know foreign entity that you you don't really want to depend on anymore. Uh, we see the, the the rising cost of aging gas infrastructure. So all these things together mean that there are incentives and rate schedules and tax credits that mean that there is a huge tailwind. So so far we we haven't had too much difficulty in recruiting True. building professionals. I think it's. It's not just local to where I'm sitting right now. It's out in the Bay Area because that's where I'm sitting right now. I see this in many places. Now, of course, we're going to be thoughtful about the phase out, right? You know, yeah. we, we're, we're going to, you know, grow our business in the places where it's going to make the most sense for the homeowners, you know, make it work out economically for those. But I see that as something that's going to grow, right? It's it's that wave is going to grow and, and some cities and some states are going to take a bit more time than others, mm-hmm. which is fine. You know, that's absolutely fine, but we'll get there. So I'd rather they were faster, but I, <laughs> I do get it. You know, you, you, your PR people reached out to me and I was like, said, yeah, I'd love to talk to Jane. That'd be awesome. Dr. Jane Melia, who wouldn't want to talk to Dr. Jane Melia? And so the question for you, though, is that was an announcement about block power. 
and yes. you guys. Yes. And we haven't even mentioned Block Party. Absolutely. Do you want to characterize that announcement a little bit, just so we can at least cover yeah. that off? So, Block, Block Power, a fantastic company, right? They're all about how do we help bring clean electric homes and how do we build mm-hmm. bring it in a way that's going to be equitable, not just for the well-meaning well-off. How do we improve the quality of life, the quality of air, comfort, and you know, clean electric solutions for lower income families. They started off in uh, in the East Coast. They're now present on the West Coast. They they have a you know presence here in, in Oakland, and they're you know they they I think you've probably seen the announcement. They you know working on uh, have a contract to help electrify the city of Ithaca, and they're working on similar programs in the uh, uh, on the West Coast. So I've been talking to people at Block Power for for, for a while. There's a uh, the the head of engineering Dominique Lampreur and I started speaking uh, uh, nearly nearly two years ago. And the alignment between our missions is very strong, right? They electrify homes, but their model is they, they run their business by saving money, right? It's the savings to homeowners that they, they're finding smart ways, financial flows that are going to help make that happen that allows us to become a, a growing business. Harvest Thermal, we're expanding our, our business by saving emissions, but saving money for homeowners, right? We're saving up to 48% of bills for homeowners. That's really important. That's what helps make it affordable. That's what helps home electrification to scale. So we have this natural alignment. So, you know, early on, uh, Dominique was saying, you know, we're we're kind of made to work together, right? You know, we have this natural alignment. And so, you know, we've been in conversations since then. We were very early stage then, and now we're commercial. We've got our contract manufacturing running. We're deploying. And so it was time to, you know, let's, let's ink this. And so now we have the partnership in place, truly support them. They support us, uh, looking forward to deploying homes with them over the coming years and to, to having this mutually beneficial effect of their electrifying homes by saving money. And we save more money than other solutions do out there. So. Oh, it sounds like an excellent and synergistic fit. One last question. It's the open-ended one. You have an audience. It's a somewhat global audience, 50% United States, 50% the rest of the world many of the parts of which you've lived in and studied and worked in. And, and so if you had one thing to share with people who you know want and aspire to be you in the future or aspire to make a difference for climate action, what would you say? Well, I mean, climate change is the most global of issues, right? Although some of us has more have more responsibility in causing it than others. And I'm probably one of the guilty parties being, you know, uh, uh, you know, a consumer, right? Uh, uh, from a, a highly developed uh, country, but um, we all we all we're all in it together, and we all need to to tackle it together. It's a global problem, but there's nothing more local than our homes and our communities. And every home has to be able to transition from often fossil fuel heating and fossil fuel hot water to a cleaner way of doing it. Heat pumps are magic. Heat pumps are a really good way to do it, and I think there are ways that we can take these Gen 1 heat pumps and make them to Gen 2 heat pumps, which are going to be even better for the planet. And I hope that this type of solution that we're spearheading here in in, in California, in the US, I think there's space for it all over the world. I think this type of thing is going to allow electrification to take place at scale in millions and millions of homes, not just in the US, but in Europe, in Australia, in Asia, and all over the world. Thank you, Jane. My guest today has been Dr. Jane Melia, the co-founder and CEO of Harvest Thermal, just announced a a new partnership with Block Power. We've had a wide-ranging conversation because I'm nerdy and she's had a really interesting background, but go check it out. Thermal storage, 
plus heat pumps save money. I think would be a, a summary of the entire thing. And they're leading on this. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thank you.